Welcome to the Big Self Podcast Weekend Edition, where while we're all trying to flatten the curve, we are also on a learning curve. Shelly, it's good to be learning here with you. I know that we are doing a little bit each and every day. Yes. Hi, honey. Hi. It's, uh, you know, our kids are in school even though they're out of school. Um, we're working even though we're talking to the daisies while we're doing it. We're afraid. We're afraid even though, you know, we've never been so optimistic. So, yeah, that's a good way to say it. There's a, a paradox of emotion. And I think the task that I feel right now for myself, and I see a lot of people having to figure out is how do you hold the tension between so many seemingly opposite experiences and emotions and um i think that's that's part of the learning for all of us right now yeah that's a really good point you know it's like we've never been so on guard even while we've never wanted to spend so much time with each other um and i also feel like we're a mess of just conflicted feelings but in a way, in a lot of other ways, life's been dramatically simplified. Yeah, which I like. I like the simplicity of of, of boredom and knowing every day is a little bit kind of the same. And there's not a lot of uh, curveballs that are coming our way. You do. I do. Yeah. I think I needed that. I think a lot of people needed that. You know, our community is so much about burnout, you right. know, burnout to wholeness and burnout to big self. And um, when this virus broke out, one of the first questions I asked everyone was, what's your experience of burnout right now? And overwhelmingly, people said it's diminished. It's gotten a lot better. My sleep is better. Uh, my rhythms have returned. Like I'm, I'm taking care of myself a little bit more. My nervous system has kind of corrected itself. And so, or in process of correcting itself. So I do think there's something really valuable about this period of stillness and kind of this um this expectation that that things are are not going to change for a while and we're all kind of in it yeah yeah there have been a lot of reality checks i guess if we're staying positive for a moment you know like i saw on facebook our friend uh a big self um member rana renee had said that her daughter said i'm gonna miss it when coronavirus mm. is over and the quarantining's over because of they've just got this feeling of closeness and they've been around each other a lot in ways that you know yeah has been uncommon yeah yeah, yeah it is uncommon in this certainly in the western world definitely in the u.s um this is this type of lifestyle you said it the other day this feels like almost like the 19th century kind of oh like yeah simplicity if they, if they just took away our internet which we did lose internet and power for a minute a few scary moments are early but um, yeah like when they're the when when the air is temperate uh and we don't have any air conditioner or heat going and and the, you know and you don't have to turn on your lights because it's sunny outside and you're just all quarantined down it does feel a little 19th century speaking of uh 19th century in some historic context i tell you here's my learning curve this is the thing that i've been yeah i was gonna ask you what are you learning learning this week is well wait, i think it was it was maybe a week ago it's been within this week that suddenly i just had this i feel like it was an insight there have been a lot of realizations to you know they, they've just been hitting me like one after the other um during this time but it, it was it was suddenly i was like this is what we're going through is is a plague if and if i once i began to think of 
coronavirus, COVID-19 as a plague, you know, it started, it started to really hit me hard and it led me to discover that there was this novel written by uh, Albert Camus uh, and he wrote it and published it in 1948. It's set in the 1940s. It's called The Plague. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, I was startled at first when I first started opening it up and, and, and looking at it that the behavior of the townspeople was so strikingly similar. Mm. And then that led me, and without even summarizing that book or even deep diving into all those parallels or what about it, I I then just kind of, I was just curious about, well, what the plague itself was like, say the 1347 to 1350 plague, the beginning of the bubonic plague of the first of the major three waves that ended up running across Europe. And just what were people's behaviors then and how were they responding to the plague then? And I just started looking at other historic things like, you know, suddenly, you you know, you're just, you become more aware that like plagues and outbreaks like this are nothing new to humankind. Mm-hmm. Nothing new, but because it's, they tend to happen every generation or so, it's always new and it's always it's always new to the people that are experiencing it and it's all it always takes you off guard you're not ready for it. you were going mm. about your life yeah and as americans especially westerners the, with our individualism and our busyness you know we're not prepared to say okay we have to pause mm. you know so yeah. I think that like it's easy for us to like look back at uh, how they were handling things. Certainly during the bubonic plague. Oh, those, oh those poor silly medieval people that didn't even know about sanitation or bacteria. Look how silly they were, just dying by the millions, you know. <laughs> And and I'm like, well, look at the psych- psychological responses. They're so incredibly similar. There's panic. There are like we are we're we're going to say something. Well, it's human. Yeah, I mean that. Like, I don't know that we've evolved that much since that period of time. Exactly. Uh, we just haven't experienced this, and so yeah, to your point, it feels new to us. But the the responses, the reactions we're having are just really human, um, which. I know yeah. you want to share your article a little bit. You just wrote a medium article. If you got, if y'all go to the big self, um, publication on medium, then, and Chad's just written an article about this that came out today. Yeah. I got fired up enough about it that I put my thoughts together and I uh, did a little research and like, here, here's a couple, like, so it was almost exactly a hundred years ago that the Spanish flu, the Spanish flu of 1918, um, it killed like it's unbelievable like how many people died. It killed 50 million people before it ran its course and infected 500 million, which was a third of the entire population of the planet. Mm. Okay, so wrapping our heads around that, it's an estimated, you know, it's apparently a small amount of Americans for how many died. Only only 675,000 estimated Americans died as a result of the so-called Spanish flu. 
um, during during that time. But one of the incredibly like scary things about the the death rate was that it actually seemed to isolate the healthiest and strongest. So I think the reason that we tend to remember that um, that outbreak more than a lot of other outbreaks that have happened since then is because it also came uh, right after the Great War. So it just between 1914 and 18 and, and then and all of those deaths and then all of the people being wiped out by the, the Spanish flu, effectively an entire generation was wiped out incredibly tragic, incredibly startling. And, you know, and here is, so this is what the CDC writes about that experience with the Spanish flu. And we're going to like make a connection to that Mm -hmm. and what's going on right with no vaccine to protect against influenza infection and no antibiotics to treat secondary bacterial infections that can be associated with influenza infections, control efforts worldwide were limited to non-pharmaceutical interventions such as isolation, quarantine, good personal hygiene, use of disinfectants, and limitations of public gatherings, which were applied unevenly. That's what happened a hundred years ago. It sounds like that could almost be exactly what they could be saying about this situation right now. We haven't learned a whole lot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, and here's and by, here's one thing too that we, we don't even really know about. Like we, we're calling this like, yes, it is something that we've never experienced, but guess what? We don't even remember in 1957 that there was an Asian, the so-called Asian flu that wiped out an estimated 116,000 people in the U.S. alone. Mm-hmm. Well, as of the time of this recording, Shelley, th- over 50,000 people have died from this disease in like the past two months. 82,000 have recovered. That's not that many, you know, and about 900,000 are infected with it because it lasts for a long time. So for me to associate this as a, um, as a plague, I think is not so alarmist or crazy. I think it's, it's, it's scary. It creates a little anxiety for me, but it also is like a very stark reminder of how seriously to take the situation. Mm-hmm. And how grateful I am for the first responders and people that are in the supply chain, moving, um, moving our healthcare equipment, moving our food, the people that are on those front lines, the people that are like exposing themselves during this effective plague. I, I have gratitude for them. Yeah, as do I. Yeah, definitely a shout out to all of our. Uh, all those frontline folks out there keeping keeping it going for us for us all. So related to what I've been learning, it sounds like you've you've um, had some interesting conversations around um, the issue of shaming. What have you learned about naming and shaming this week? Yeah. Um, so Easter, um, you know, across the social media channels, um, I saw lots of you know large gatherings of Easter brunches and photos of Easter egg hunts with 
you know, multi-generational families and lots of people gathered. And I felt... That didn't seem to at all be social distancing. Right, right. And I I really, since then, so really for the last, I guess, couple of weeks now, I've been wrestling with this idea of, of shame um, and collective trust. You know, the, the idea that in the absence of trust, we... Uh, revert to shame. Um, but then my question, I guess, to follow it on to that is, is it really shaming or are we naming bad behavior? And is there a distinction between those two? And I think that there is. Um, I think that shame is, you know, if you look at the classic definition, guilt is, is um, you know, we feel guilt about our behaviors, about what we do. We feel shame about who we are. So, um, you know, this kind of idea of public shaming, I don't know if that's really what we're talking about. I think we're talking more about um, collective trust and trust is built by tested expectations. And if you're not, if you don't have the same expectations as the rest, your community or other folks in your sphere, um, then how do you build trust and how do you keep trust and uh, manage trust. And when we don't all play from the same playbook, um, it's really hard to have trust with people. Well, I think that, okay. So, and that, so building of the trust, super important social thing. I want to expand the definition of shaming. I think um, the shaming thing can be really effective. I can't believe I'm saying that, but in a way, I think it can be an effective tool. I think we see that, especially a social media platform. What comes to mind to you is the biggest shamer of, of on social media? I don't know. To me, it's Twitter. Out the oh, outrage, yeah. the outrage on yeah. Twitter. Well, you have all to the kind time. of get to the point on Twitter, right? So you get to your outrage real fast. I guess so. But anyway, like we came across this powerful um, article. Um, that that from like a, a shame expert, I guess, is what she she's a sociologist. And um, she talks about like how our moral judgments are harsher if we believe that an individual did something intentionally. And it's likely, for instance, that we will punish politicians who downplayed the harms of the coronavirus to the public, while at the same time, you know, we were personally, oh yeah, while they were personally preparing for the virus, such as selling off their shares in the stock market. You know, there's kind of like an, a, we need to name and claim and yeah. not let things like that get away. So there has to be a place in this conversation uh, in the way that we're all living and showing up in life right now. There has to be a place to call out bad behavior not from self-righteousness, not from I know something and you're not following the rules that I believe or I know, but there is, there has to be some kind of baseline for um, how we're all going to coexist right now. And I look back and I think about all these, these times in our history um, as a country or as a community where we've had to hold people to account for their bad behavior um, and right. so, so there has to be a place for that conversation, but here's what I will say. I, I don't love the, I, the, the notion that shame is the way we do that. I think that I don't think we're talking about shame. I think that's a really okay. heavy word that, um, that doesn't get the intended changes that we think that it will. I think it makes us feel better. Yeah. 
either to personally, you know, privately or publicly shame someone. Um, but I think what, what I'm starting to learn and kind of lean more into is how do we hold someone to account with, um, data and with love that this whole idea of justice and mercy, I like that. um, there has to be this go back to paradox and kind of holding the tension. Um, we're going to have hard conversations, both hopefully face to face, but probably a lot online. And I don't think those conversations will be fruitful if it's just about self-righteous naming behavior. I think they have to be fact-based. So we're going to, we're going to talk about the data and it has to be laced with lots of compassion. That's the only way that we, uh, I think there's any movement through how do we kind of collectively coexist. And I think, you know, to your point a few minutes ago, you talked about this kind of individualism and we're really good at being individualistic. We are not great about being collective. And if you, if we look at some of the other countries, um, that are, doing a lot better job than we are um, of, of fighting this pandemic. They're, they're a collective. They're a, the communal society, not such an individualistic, my rights matter right. over your safety. And that's really where the conversation, I think, gets to. But the more we, quote, shame people, the more that's going to happen. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're right along those lines. It, 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 that's where the, the shaming will, uh, if that's what it is, it, it just like it's the outrage police, it's mob rule, it's a, it does lead right. to a lot of self-righteousness. Speaking of the 19th century, I can think of like, you know, how people would get really mad at someone, put them in the stockade, you know, pillory them and, you know, humiliate yeah, them by throwing eggs at them. And that, that's, that's not, not the kind work. of, that's not the kind of shaming that um, we think is ethical or, um, or appropriate in these times but there there is that nevertheless we have to like we have to call it something that when we feel upset that someone else's behavior is repugnant and impacting others it does need to and you don't want to just sit there quietly and you know you you want to name it right naming it versus shaming it i think we have a duty to step into those those hard conversations uh, but doing it with data and love, not shame, not, I don't think that that's going to really get the- data. I mean, well, let's, let me, let me uh, challenge that notion just slightly. Of course, I would think everybody would say, of course, we, we want to support our claims with data, but we also know what all politicians can do with stats, right? As Mark Twain said, there's what lies and then there's there's damn lies and then there's statistics or something like that (laughs) but you know i guess yes but why are we letting the politicians dictate this conversation well i mean more importantly i just mean that we can take data and twist it to our own ends yeah and i do think a a lot of how we approach the these these expectations we have for ourselves and our families is a lot about who we're listening to. Who do we trust? You know, it comes back to that notion of trust. You know, trust is built through tested expectations. So um, I don't have any other answers right now other than I think there's something to having these compassionate and loving conversations with a backpack full of facts and data. I love it. Well, that is what we are learning this week. We don't have all the answers. And well, that's why we keep on learning, uh, just learning about naming, shaming, 
the plague and what history can tell us so we don't repeat the past, you know, stuff like facts. Facts are stubborn things. Thanks for tuning in. Please let us know uh, how we can do better. We're here each and every week and uh, we keep on learning and uh, hope we can uh, share a little bit of what you could be taking away from this too. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your weekend with us and we'll see you back here next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, join the community on Facebook at the Big Self Society. You can find us at big underscore self on Twitter. And we are also at the Big Self Society on Medium, where we feature and curate content on topics ranging from psychology to creativity and productivity. We'd love to hear from you. What show made an impact on your thinking, your habits, your decision making, or anything else? And anyone you'd like us to reach out to and have on the show, let us know.